Welcome to the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast, where educators come together to discuss their journey on the road to financial independence. Now, please join our co-host, Dave and Brandon, as they prepare to help other educators get fit with their finances. Welcome and thanks for joining us on episode number 90 of the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast. If you think your story can help other educators and you'd be willing to come on the show, please shoot me an email at getfiteducator at gmail.com. And just one last reminder, next Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, November 20th, we will be hosting a Basics of Investing workshop. So check out our social media pages for a link to sign up or send me an email at getfiteducator at gmail.com and we can get you that link. Coach, we are in the midst of my favorite time of the school year. How are things going with you as we head toward Thanksgiving break? Well, you know, in the the, the post-Halloween period, I'd say from Halloween to New Year's Day is my favorite time of the year. I'm, I'm a, I'm, I guess you might say I'm a festive person. I, I like all the, the hoopla, man. I like the Halloween, the Thanksgiving, the Christmas, the New Year's Day. You know, and then January second hits, and that's you know that's a whole other ball game, man. It's like all downhill there from until summer. But, uh, <laughs> well, you still got the Super Bowl coming after that, I suppose. That's always fun. But uh, things are going really well, and I'm looking forward to getting right to this episode because we've got the white coat investor on today. Yeah, obviously, neither one of us are doctors. Uh, we know that there are doctors uh, in the education field, but we're going to be chatting with Jim, who is a practicing ER uh, physician who spends lots of time with high-income professionals. And you might ask, why is he on a teacher and middle-income-centered podcast? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. Jim, welcome. How are you doing today? Thank you. It's wonderful to be on the podcast. It's a busy day for me, but I am excited to be with you. Uh, you know what? I do talk to lots of groups of high earners, doctors, et cetera. And, uh, and but the truth is, as I think we'll discover today, a lot of the principles of personal finance and investing are universal, no matter what your income is, no matter what your profession is. And, uh, and so I'll share a few anecdotes as we go along that, uh, that kind of illustrate that and how just having a high income doesn't necessarily save you financially. Um, and uh, you, you might be surprised just how badly your doctor is doing with money. Yeah, I don't know if this was from you, Jim, because I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I read a lot of stuff and I follow you on social media. That's how we ended up getting you on the show. And we appreciate you coming on a teacher podcast. But I once heard uh, of a gentleman, and it might have been your story. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, he was pumping gas at a gas station and he was driving like a, a 1991 old pickup truck that was like 15, 20 years old. And he had his white coat on and, and a guy was pumping gas next to him and he was pumping up an Escalade. And he said, man, he's like, are you a doctor? And he said, yeah, absolutely. He goes, why are you driving such a piece of crap truck? And he was basically saying, you know, that many people in the medical field feel the social pressure. And we talked about this on our last episode. Our last episode, we had a teacher from Kentucky and she was actually a financial advisor before she became a teacher. And she said, one of the things she likes about education is nobody expects us to be living extravagant lives. You can drive a vehicle that's 15, 20 years old that has 250,000 miles and the students expect you to be broke anyway. So there isn't any social status that we have to really live up to. I don't know if that was your story or not, or if it was another person's story, but can you talk a little bit about some of the pressures 
that people in the medical field with these high incomes have versus maybe the teacher in Kentucky, maybe making 60,000 a year. Yeah, absolutely. That pressure's there, you know, and and it's bizarre because it starts so early. It starts before you even make a decent income. You graduate from medical school, you're going to residency, you're literally making like $8 an hour, uh, you know, as a resident, because you're working so many hours, you're getting paid about an average American, you know, median income, but you're working so many hours, it works out to like eight bucks an hour or something. And so everyone already expects you to be living this fancy pants doctor lifestyle. You probably got a net worth of minus $300,000. And they're like, you know, time to, you know, go on fancy vacations and get a fancy car and that sort of stuff. And it's just completely unrealistic. Yeah. It reminds me of the Larry Bird story. Uh, I think Dave, you just posted this today. Larry Bird is, he's, of course, he's a high income earner in the NBA and all the NBA players are making pretty well. And he was telling all the, all of his teammates, you know, stop spending all your money because, you know, you got to plan for your futures. And he said those guys were joking him for saving money and not spending any money. He said then later in life, they're all coming to me asking me for money because they don't have any left. Right. And Larry said it broke my heart to tell him no, but I warned him. I told him, you know, now I can't fund I can't fund your 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 present because you didn't prepare for it. You know, yeah. the uh, NFL puts their rookies through a financial school these days. That's uh, great. Because the, the, the lowest income you can have in the NFL is like $800,000. It's a lot of money. Um, but the average NFL tenure is only three years. And if half that money you made goes to taxes and you blew any significant amount of it, a lot of those guys are broke by 30. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's not all about income. I'm not going to lie. More income does help. You know, let's not tell people that making more income does not make it a lot of these financial challenges we have easier. Um, but it is certainly not the only solution. It is certainly not everything when it comes to personal finance and investing. The classic tome on this, of course, is the 1990s book, Millionaire Next Door. And they've got an entire chapter dedicated to doctors demonstrating why lots of doctors don't build wealth at all. But let me throw out some statistics from much more recent surveys. If you take a group of doctors and ask them their net worth, you know, everything they own minus everything they owe, and you stratify it by age, and you just look at the data for doctors in their 60s. You know, these are people that have had a doctor income for 20 or 30 plus years at this point, right? They should be financially independent. They should be multimillionaires, right? If they saved any significant percentage of it at all. And the statistics show that 11 to 12% of doctors in their 60s have a net worth of less than $500,000. That's their house, retirement accounts, investments, cars, their stuff, everything. Less than $500,000 after decades of doctor paychecks. And about 25% of doctors are not millionaires. I'm not talking about the residents. I'm not talking about doctors in the 30s or 40s. I'm talking doctors at the end of their career. 25% of them are not millionaires. And, uh, and the reason why is usually because they spent it all. They simply spent it all. And whether you make $50,000 a year or $250,000 a year, let me promise you, you can spend it all. You can do it personally. You can spend $250,000 a year. It is not that hard to do. Lots of people are doing it every day. And um, so it's really about carving out a difference between what you're making and what you're spending and investing that in some sort of an intelligent way for the long run. 
Yeah, it's uh, yeah. interesting that you were talking about the the pro athletes and the and the taxes. I was actually teaching in my personal finance today, uh, class today about the progressive tax system and 12%, 10% to 12%, the 22 to 24, showing the kids the difference between being married and being single. And we took exactly what you said. I, I told my kids, everybody thinks of Tom Brady when they think of the NFL, but for every Tom Brady, there's 150 players that didn't even make it two or three years. And the average lifespan of the NFL player is three years. And we went through the whole process of, and we did the math. I had them all whip out a calculator. Okay. If I sign an NFL contract for a million dollars, after state and federal taxes, you know, we're down to 500,000. Then you got to pay your agent 10%. Now we're down to 400,000. If you go out and buy a, a G wagon at 250,000, you literally don't have anything left. So it's amazing that you said that, uh, Brandon, I'm sorry, I guess you were getting ready to chime in. What were you going to say, coach? I, I just wanted to kind of get into, um, you know, uh, a Jim's personal story. You know, if we could kind of kind of back up just a little bit and talk about how you got here and how you became the white coat investor. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because, first of all, I don't consider myself the white coat investor. I consider that the audience for my blog and podcast and, and so on and so forth. You know, they are the white coat investors. I got you. I just, uh, you know, started putting it together and building the community. But uh, my story basically starts as someone that had zero interest in finance. You know, I went away to college uh, and I was interested in science. You know, I was interested in medicine. And so I was a typical pre-med, got through in four years, got into medical school, went to medical school, loved it, loved what I was learning. Um, and uh, four of the best years of my life in medical school. You know, a lot of people talk about the stress of it and the downsides of it, but man, I sure loved it. It was great. Went away to residency in emergency medicine in Tucson. And uh, again, favorite job I ever had. You know, resident is a tough, tough job, a resident physician, uh, but loved it because I was applying everything I'd been studying for the last eight years. Um, but I started noticing something. Every time I had an interaction with a financial professional, I came uh, out worse for it. I kept getting taken advantage of realtors, mortgage lenders, uh, financial advisors, in insurance agents. Um, you know, you name it, I got taken advantage of. And I decided I just need to start learning this stuff on my own or this is going to keep happening throughout my career because doctors have this big target on their back. You know, the financial services industry views a doctor as a whale to be harpooned and harvested, you know? And so I decided I better get financially literate. And what I found as I kept learning of this stuff is that I really loved it and found it was interesting, just as interesting to me as medicine. And so I started teaching it to other people informally and, you know, on the internet and on forums and so forth. And after a few years, I realized I was doing a whole lot more teaching than I was learning. And so I started the White Coat Investor as a blog in 2011. And since that time, over the last 11, 12 years, it's grown into the most widely read physician-specific personal finance and investing website in the world. Uh, again, the the biggest podcast in this, uh, you know, it's not a big niche, but it's the biggest podcast in this niche and turned it into a business where, where I'm now employing 15 people. And so it's uh, it's been a, a marvelous journey and been able to help, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of doctors and other high-income professionals along the way. And that's just the niche we sit in was trying to serve high-income professionals, um, you know, including those that aren't yet high-income professionals, uh, as well as those that have kind of already gotten there and gotten that income and found that that income did not solve all their problems, all their financial problems even. Um, and so we spend a lot of time solving what I call 
you know, first world problems. I'm not sure that's a PC term you can use anymore. Um, but a lot of the problems we deal with are, are things that a lot of people say, boy, I wish I had that problem. Um, but it's a problem nonetheless. And uh, it might be dealing with our very progressive tax system because it is not unusual for you, despite having this terribly negative net worth, you know, owing hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans, to still be paying a third or 40% of your income in taxes. And it's hard to get ahead, even if you have a decent income when you're losing that much of your money to the tax man. Yeah. Ramsey Solutions recently had the study on millionaires that showed the five most represented careers of millionaires and doctor was not in the top five, but teacher was. Um, what are some of the things that you've seen as you've worked with other high income earning doctors and medical professionals what are some of the things that set them back? Obviously, we know student loans, but what are some of the things that you do that maybe or that you see them doing that's not as wise? What are some of the common themes that many teachers, again, we can't imagine in education making $150,000, $250,000 a year on a sole income? What are some of the mistakes that these people are making? Yeah, it's really interesting to get into them. But before we get into them, let's talk a little bit about that study, because I think the truth is it is easier to become a millionaire on a doctor income than it is on a teacher income. Right. But there are so many more teachers in the world than there are doctors. And I think that's why there's more millionaire teachers, um, because absolutely it is uh, entirely possible um, and not even that complicated to become a millionaire on a more average American income. Um, you have a lot of things going for you that you do not have as a high income professional. If you think about all of your tax deductions, if you think about all of your tax credits, a typical doctor is phased out of all of those. Um, they are much more likely to be forced to have to save outside of retirement accounts, which are a huge gift from uncle Sam to be able to invest in retirement accounts. Um, you know, there's all these advantages that a lot of people don't realize that they have just having a more moderate income. You know, if you take somebody that's making $40,000-$50,000 married with a couple of kids, and that's the entire family's income, maybe they put a little bit of money into a retirement account or something, they pay payroll taxes, but they don't pay federal income taxes. You know, between the credits they get back and the tax brackets they're in and and the standard deduction and so forth, they, they literally... Do not have to pay taxes and you can build a lot more wealth when you actually get to keep your income. So there there are significant advantages that a lot of people don't realize they have that go away as you start earning more income. Uh, But let's talk about these high earners and what they do wrong because they do a lot of things wrong. And most of them are the same things that every other American is doing wrong. They spend too much money. They buy the wrong insurance. Uh, They get scammed out of their money. They pay too much for financial advice and other financial services. Um, they uh, they care too much about what the Joneses think. You know, they're buying stuff that they don't even want to impress people they don't even like, you know, mm-hmm. with money they don't even have. And just because you make $150,000 doesn't mean you can't do that. You certainly can. Um, but some of the bigger challenges that doctors have that a lot of people don't realize is they start out their career much later. It's pretty typical for a doc to not even come out of their education and training until their early to mid thirties. So whereas an educator might come out with a bachelor's at 22 and be able to start working, putting money into a 401k, getting a match, letting the miracle of compound interest work, that doctor might not start that until 35. 
And that's assuming they went straight through, you know, we're able to get into medical school right away. Um, another big challenge they have is, uh, you know, you can get through undergrad in a lot of places in this country. You can work your way through. You can get through with a minimum amount of student loans um, and uh, start your career really at a net worth pretty close to zero. That is extremely hard to do for medical school. If you are not willing to sign a contract with the uh, National Health Service Corps or Indian Health Services or uh, the Health Profession Scholarship Program with the military, you are going to be paying a lot of money for your education. And unless your parents are extraordinarily wealthy, you're going to be doing that with student loans. And graduate school student loans have twice the interest rate that undergraduate student loans have, and they're not subsidized. The interest starts accumulating and compounding right from when you start taking that loan out. So the average MD graduate these days has about $205,000 in student loans. If they have a DO, it's about $250,000. If they are a dentist, it's about $270,000. But that is the average. Lots of people have more. I just got off the phone an hour ago with somebody I was recording a podcast with. Him and his wife owe $800,000 in student loans combined between the two of them. So even if you come out at age 35 with a pretty good income, you know, maybe between the two of them, they're making $400,000, $600,000. They need to spend years with every spare penny they can carve out of that income after tax and send it to their student loan lender. And so just dealing with student loans is a big challenge for a lot of, uh, of physicians and other high-income earners as well. I think you just successfully uh, talked a lot of young people out of becoming doctors <laughs> and becoming teachers. Uh, yeah. because, because, you know, if you understand the miracle of compound interest, you know that the 20, your 20s is the most important time. Uh, if you're talking about retirement anyway, you know, and, and so that was a – I never really gave that any thought that, you know, at 22 years old, you could be – you know, socking away quite a bit of money in relationship to your income to, you know, a Roth IRA or something like that and collecting that compound interest uh, and, and have 40 years of compound interest as opposed right. to maybe 25. Right. Uh, That's exactly so, right. You, you lose so, one or two doublings there. That you do. And, and so what that means is, is that, of course, a dollar invested at 22 is worth much more than a dollar invested at 32 or, or 35. And so that's an interesting point. When you couple that with the student loan debt that you can get, you know, I guess there's a lot of pressure to come out of that tunnel of medical school to come out of there successful. You, you better, well, you better get well, it, make the grades and you better get a, a, a pretty good job. And, and then, and then also practice great financial principles. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's not guaranteed, but, it, you know, if you can get into medical school, most of the time you can get into a residency and most of the time you can get out and most of the time you can get a good job. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so once you get into the pipeline, most of the time you come out of the pipeline. OK, gotcha. income wise, you know, it's not like law school where they're trying to weed a third of the class out in the first year. You know, that's not necessarily what medical schools are doing. Um, but you're right. You lose a lot. And, uh, you know, even if you come out at 35 with a great income, you might spend the first five years just getting rid of the student loans. So it might really not be until 40. I have these people uh, emailing me going, hey, I'm getting a late start. I haven't saved anything for retirement. I'm 42. And I'm like, guess what? You're a normal doctor, you know, to right. be starting your, your retirement savings at that age. So um, and, you know, there's there's very few pensions. In medicine, almost no one has any sort of a pension or um, retirement plan like that. Uh, for instance, I have never had a 401k match in my entire career. 
Um, you know, basically everything that's in my retirement accounts is just cold brute force savings. Um, you know, and then of course, doctors worry a lot about liability as well and getting sued. That's another, you know, big concern that lots of doctors have that maybe the typical educator doesn't spend a lot of time worrying about. Um, but for the most part, the issue is we, we start earning late and we start in a big hole. Yeah. I worked with a, a science teacher a handful of years ago and she had gone to medical school at a prestigious private university, but after a year and a half decided that it wasn't for her. So she ended up becoming a public school teacher, making about $42,000 a year to start, but had $250,000 worth of student loans between undergrad and that first year of medical school. And she's like, what do I do? I was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly, I don't know how I can help you with $250,000 of student loan debt making 42,000 a year. It seems almost impossible. I guess uh, the good news was she taught at a low income school in a high, hard to staff position being in science. And, and a lot of times after 10 years, some of those loans can get forgiven, but yeah. uh, that's a very yeah, tough so situation. This, this is an interesting thing because this is a huge deal in the physician financial space is are these public service loan forgiveness programs because lots of physician positions are, uh, you know, you're an employee of a 501c3 and you qualify for that forgiveness. And by the time you spend three to seven years in residency and fellowship, all those years count too. You might only be working three years as an attending before you qualify for public service loan forgiveness. But this is something that a lot of teachers ought to be aware of. A lot of them are employees of nonprofits or government entities. You know, public school teachers, they qualify for public service loan forgiveness. Once you make payments for 10 years, the rest of your federal loans get forgiven tax-free. So they ought to be aware of that. And, uh, you know, if you happen to have a particularly high student loan burden, that there'll still be loans after 10 years of payments, that is a great uh, option to take. Yeah, absolutely. Matter of fact, we, we had a, an expert on the show um, not too long ago. He actually, he also did a webinar for us where he was teaching on the process of getting your loans forgiven. And uh, we've had, we had some teachers that got a lot of money worth of loans for you. I mean, a lot of money of loans forgiven, which was really great to see it really, you know, that, that frees up a big burden. So one of our, one of our uh, big imperatives uh, that we talk about is, is frugality. We talk about, you know, it, it, teachers staying within their means, you know, spend less than you make, you know, be smart at the grocery store, be smart in, in, in all of your line items in your budget, have a budget, have a good budget. What kind of advice do you give, as far as, uh, uh, you know, just the principle of frugality goes and mistakes that you see made there amongst doctors. Yeah. Doctors are not that good at being frugal. It turns out, yeah. um, they, <laughs> you know, the natural thing to do for anybody, no matter what your income is, the natural thing is to grow entirely into your income and even beyond. Right. That is what you will do. If you're like most people, that is what you will do naturally without some sort of a plan keeping you from doing it. Now, there's probably 10% of people out there that are natural savers. But for the vast majority of people, what they will naturally do is grow right into their income as soon as they have it. And they will spend it. Uh, they'll look at, okay, I got this much money a month. I'm going to go buy a car payment that is that much per month. And, uh, and we'll spend it. And doctors are no different in that respect. They are not being given all kinds of great financial advice in, in medical school or residency so that they'll start doing the stuff you're learning about on this podcast. Um, and so they tend to do the natural thing, just like anybody else would. Um, and so a lot of the, the, you know, preaching, for lack of a better term that I give to them, is yes, you too have to budget. 
Even though you're making $200,000 a year, you still need a budget and you have to figure out a way to spend significantly less than you're earning. You know, if you start at 22, maybe you get away with only saving 10 or 15% of your income to become financially independent by the end of your career. Uh, when you start at 40, like most doctors, that number better be 20% or more. And, uh, you know, not to mention social security will make up a much lower percentage of their retirement income, um, just because of the nature of it. And so frugality is obviously a pretty important part and, uh, and getting doctors to understand that they are not what they drive. They are not what they wear. They are not where they vacation. Um, and that they have a really powerful tool, their high income, if they will just harness it. And the only way to harness it is to get control of your spending and know where your dollar is going. Give every dollar a name and um, and, and do it the way that, uh, you know, you need to. Yeah, I think it was really interesting what you were talking about earlier. You know, let's just say, you know, Brandon and I, we both started teaching right at 22, right out of college. You know, let's just say in America, the average teacher, and again, this is just an average I made up. Let's say the average teacher makes $45,000 per year, the first 12 years of your career. So let's say they start at 22 and now this takes them to around 34 or 35. That teacher has made almost $600,000 in their career before that doctor maybe gets out of medical school and residency and starts to make money. And then, like you said, maybe the, the first five years for a doctor is super, you know, gazelle intense three to five years of paying off that four or $500,000 of student loans. So now they're not even ready to build wealth until 40, where myself, I started teaching at 22 in North Carolina, where we are, I, I can actually collect on my pension at 50 years old right, right. and have healthcare the rest of my life at 50. I was really interested, as you said, that most doctors don't have access to pensions. What do you think of the pension and, and how powerful of a tool do you think that is for public educators Say for a teacher in North Carolina, at 50 years old, my pension will be approximately $3,000 per month every month the rest of my life. And if I pass away, that'll get left to my spouse as well. So what do you think about teachers and the power that their pension shares in their financial plan? Yeah, so this is unique to to not that many industries. You know, a lot of teachers still, military members um, and, and some government workers and not a lot of other people. Um, so I went into the military for a few years and one of the best financial pathways in the military is to go in at 18, right? No college degree at all. Go in at 18. Maybe you're a medical tech or something, you know, you get a few months training and they put you to work over the next few years, you, uh, go to college on the military's dime and then you become an officer and you by 38 are qualifying for a military pension as an officer, right? Um, and, uh, you know, maybe you're a nurse or something at this point. And, um, and you're literally done by the time most doctors start earning money. You are done. You, you qualify for a pension. You've got health care the rest of your life. Um, and you never had student loans because the military paid for it. I mean, it, it's a pretty darn good pathway for a kid coming out of high school. And because um, that pension is valuable because you can you can determine what your pension is worth. It's not that hard to do. All you got to do is go out and price it on the open market. Right. You can buy a pension. You go to a, a insurance company and you buy what's called an immediate annuity. And uh, what you'll see is that, uh, you know, an immediate annuity that you buy in your 30s or 40s or 50s, uh, you're 
you know, it costs a lot of money to buy an income stream. And so an income stream starting in your 40s of $3,000 a month is a very valuable thing. That's probably worth between one and 1.25 million. Your pension alone makes you a millionaire. And a lot of people don't realize that that is how valuable a pension is. Um, and if you get healthcare with it as well, I mean, people in their 50s that go out and buy health insurance for them and their spouse on the open market, it's not unusual for them to be paying $2,000 a month. You know, so if you think about getting health care and you think about getting a $3,000 a month pension, in reality, that's a $5,000 a month paycheck that you're getting. Um, and that's incredibly valuable. That might be worth a million and a half dollars. Wow, that is uh, that is an interesting take on that. So, so Dave, I, I I can I can already say I'm a net worth millionaire here, possibly because yeah, you were, you had a big smile on your big face. smile on my face there. I, I already hit the goal, uh, uh, Coach. I already hit the goal. I'm already the net. So, you know, I always talk about on the show, Jim, that you know I love what I'm doing. I can't imagine getting out. Uh, you know, I'll probably be 65 years old and still doing this. So, in a sense, I sort of already feel like I'm financially independent because I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Uh, if I won the lottery, I would still want to do what I'm doing, I think. I, and I know that sounds that sounds crazy to so many. And I, I can hear I can almost hear the eyes rolling uh, as people are listening to me say that. But it's true, though. I love to do what I do. So, you know, I kind of already consider myself financially independent. But I think that pension is unbelievably valuable. I think that a lot of times as teachers, we we overlook the sheer value of that pension that's coming uh, to us. And, and also and not every state has the pension that North Carolina has, we really do have a pretty good one. North Carolina has got its faults, but in North Carolina, we really do have a, a good pension. I'd love for you to talk just a little bit about um, just investing in general. Maybe you can get as specific with it as you like, but you know, another imperative that we talk about all the time is being fearless because for teachers, this is tough because when you start giving 10 to 20% of your income into say a Roth IRA, a Roth IRA, we always, we usually talk about index funds on the show because that they, instantly diversify you they are you know especially if it's a total market index fund it's pretty it's it's pretty safe i mean the whole market would pretty much have to tank and in that case we're all pretty much done for anyway so we all, we always kind of go that route but we'd love to hear you know your take on investing and just what you know the kind of advice you might give and you know as specific as you like sure well let me before i get into investing let me react yeah. a little bit to something you yeah. said about um financially independence and working beyond that um, luckily, you know, I, I'm a doc, I made a pretty good income and I became financially literate early on in my career. So we saved a ton of money, uh, did things to maximize our income, invested it smartly. And we've been financially independent for the last four or five years. Uh, I'm still working. I'm still working in the hospital, seeing patients. I was in the ER at 10 o'clock last night, taking care of a heart attack patient. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I'm spending 15 hours literally working today on the white coat investor stuff between meetings I've got and recording podcasts. And I've got a speaking gig tonight in a town two hours away. So I, I am still working very much after financial independence because financial independence isn't necessarily just about punching out. It's also that it is that for some people, uh, but for many more people, it's just about being in control of what your financial life looks like, what you're doing with your life, having options. And a lot of times what people will choose is still to work and still to work for pay in some way. Uh, when I survey doctors, right, these people that are called into medicine, that it's almost more of a calling than it is a job. And I ask them, if I wrote you a check for $10 million right now, 
what would your work life look like tomorrow? And one out of three of them says, I'm not showing up to work. I'm done. One out of three. About 55% will say, I am going to work, but I'm going to work less. I'll take less call. I'll take Fridays off and Wednesday afternoons off. Um, you know, I'm not going to work as many shifts a month. You know, in some way they will work less. And about 10% of them say, I would work exactly what I'm doing right now. So um, everybody's a little bit different in that respect. But what financial independence does is it gives you control. If you're in a crappy job, you got now the resources to leave it or to threaten to make changes to it. Uh, you can cut back. You can, uh, you know, you can punch out completely. You can go do an encore career. Maybe you want to go be a rafting guide or something, whatever. But it gives you options. So financial independence isn't just about retirement. And I think there's more people like you and I out there that financial independence doesn't actually change what we do every day. All right, let's talk about investing. Uh, if I'm not the world's biggest advocate for index funds, you know, I, I can't be that far behind. You know, I may not be Jack Bogle, but I've got more of my income invested in index funds as a percentage than Jack Bogle ever did. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of index funds, instant diversification. The costs are so low, it's almost free. I mean, we're talking about three basis points a year. That's that's nothing. That's a rounding error uh, is what it costs to buy every stock in the world. Um, you know, you get professional management, you get daily liquidity, uh, you get massive diversification and you get guaranteed market returns. What the market does, you will do when you buy a total stock market index fund. And over the long run, those returns are enough for you to meet your goal. And you will beat those trying to beat the market 90% plus of the time over the long run, especially if you're investing outside of retirement accounts and you have to deal with the effects of taxation on your investment returns. So the vast majority of my investments are index funds, you know, and I keep it pretty simple. You know, my, my biggest investment holding, my favorite mutual fund, is the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund. And 25% of my wealth is in that fund. Um, you know, I've got uh, a little bit of a small value tilt. So I have a small value fund. Uh, I also have a total international stock market fund. And I've got a small international uh, index fund. That's 60% of my money between those four funds. Um, you know, I have 60% in stocks, then I have 20% in bonds and I have 20% in real estate. The bonds and real estate get a little bit more interesting, but the stocks are pretty darn boring. Broadly diversified, low cost index funds. I put money into them every month um, and, uh, and they've done just fine over the years. They will continue to do just fine going forward. Yes, some years you lose 20 or 22%, like we're down this year. Uh, but, you know, on average, you're going to get the market returns. You're going to be just fine. Uh, just keep investing. As my friend uh, Nick Maggiuli likes to say, his new book is called exactly that. Just keep investing. Every month, put some money in and you'll be amazed how much money you end up with in 10 or 20 years. You just summed up the fit position on Be Fearless right there. That's, that, that's exactly what we say all the time. Uh, uh, Dave, I don't even think I would add anything to that. Yeah, I was just curious, you know, people, I don't want to say they argue over this, but I was curious when it comes to Vanguard, are you more of a fan of VTI or VTSAX? And, you know, for a lot of listeners, I know, I don't know how familiar you are with J.L. Collins uh, and his book, The Simple Path to Wealth, but is there one that that you like? Which one do you have if it's one of those two, or is it something different if you're comfortable sharing? 
Yeah, I'm uh, actually really familiar with J.L. Collins' book. I tried to buy it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, it doesn't matter. It's the same mutual fund. That's what people need to understand. This is the same fund, whether you buy the ETF version, VTI, or whether you buy the mutual traditional mutual fund version, VTSAX, it's the same fund. Same thing, same, same, same stocks in it. Uh, you know, you should expect the same long-term return out of it, et cetera. In fact, they are very similarly tax efficient because of Vanguard's unique uh, structure that they actually have a patent on. I don't know how many more years before that patent runs out and everybody starts doing this, but they're they're similarly tax efficient if you have to invest outside of a retirement account. Um, but uh, I just use whichever one is more convenient for where I'm investing. So for many years, I had that holding inside retirement accounts. It was pretty easy to use the traditional mutual fund. These days, it's all in my taxable account just because of the way I have my accounts set up right now. Uh, most of my money is not inside retirement accounts, unfortunately. And uh, so I'm actually using the ETF more often now there. Um, but uh, I, I would not feel bad about using the traditional mutual fund in any way, shape or form. Um, there have been times when I actually own both of them at the same time, but right now I'm actually in the ETF version. It's a little bit more of a pain to buy shares because you got to go in while the market's open and put in a buy order. Uh, but aside from that, it's it's trivial, the difference between the two. Once you understand how to buy and sell a mutual fund and how to buy and sell an ETF, uh, there's very little other difference with Vanguard index funds. Yeah, we, we, um, so I started off with uh, VTI because you, you know, with VTI, I, I, with VT, with VT Sachs, you had to have a minimum amount. I think when I started it, and my, I don't remember, I 3, think it was 3,000. Yeah, it was 3,000 when I started. And so when I started, I didn't have $3,000 that I wanted to invest, but I could go into VTI and buy shares. And so I started off just doing shares. And I think at that time, shares were, it might it might have been over two hundred. It was definitely over two hundred dollars a share, I think, at that point. And then and now, of course, it's down, uh, which means you can buy more shares. The shares are on sale now uh, compared <laughs> to when I first started. So we you can get more shares for your for your dollar now. But um, the great thing about uh, VT Sachs is that you can just kind of set it and forget it and do fractional and all that once you've got your original three thousand. Which that that part's kind of nice. I don't have to go in and actively do it. But but yeah, those are the ones. Those are the ones that you know, JL Collins. Uh, advocated for we've had a bunch of guests on the show that have advocated for them as well matter of fact I, we were actually recording a show when i decided i'm going to start investing you know that's how much of a rookie i am you know I, I was still banging away at debt at the time and um you know we were kind of doing the math on the show and we were like you know it kind of makes sense for me to go ahead because you know i'm not getting any younger uh if i could put a little bit of money towards investing that'd be nice but but yeah being fearless that is a that is a big imperative i think teachers have a hard time getting over the hump of you know, getting getting past the the fear of losing their money, uh, and and it and it takes a little bit of doing sometimes to convince them that that's the thing to do. Yeah, and I think um, I think one of the things that's an advantage to teachers, Jim, and and hopefully come back with that thought is lots of doctors who are high income, especially if they have a high income earning spouse or maybe two doctors together, they might not have access to such, uh, say a thing, a Roth IRA the way that we do, because they might make too much money. Although of course there's the back door and stuff. I was going to ask if you could maybe comment on uh, how powerful that Roth IRA is for a teacher out there and just, you know, doing the $500 a month, getting in the 6,000 a year, and maybe doctors don't have access to that Roth type of account like that. 
Yeah, it's uh, uh well, the issue isn't so much that they don't have access to it. They they can make contributions to a Roth IRA, as you mentioned, indirectly via the backdoor Roth IRA. It's pretty amazing how many ways there are to screw that up. You know, in my work, uh, it's amazing how many people screw up their backdoor Roth IRA. Teachers don't have to deal with that. They can just invest directly into a Roth IRA. It's particularly beneficial, though, to a teacher that's going to be getting a pension because that pension is going to fill up some of the lower brackets. So it's nice to have tax-free income on top of that, especially right now when you're not, you know, paying that much in taxes for most teachers. And so Roth is probably the way to go for any teacher expecting a pension. It's the same thing I tell the military folks, you know, a Roth, 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 Roth. And if you got a 401k or a 403b, look at the Roth there too. That's almost right. surely the way to do it for a teacher uh, expecting a pension of any kind. Uh, it's not always the case for a doctor. Doctors in their peak earnings years, a lot of times are better off with a tax deferred account. Um, but, uh, you know, after they max that out, they can do a backdoor Roth IRA. And after that, if they want to save more, they're going to be saving in a taxable account. And a typical doctor is going to have to save much more of their retirement nest egg in a taxable account than a typical teacher would. In fact, I would bet most teachers don't need a taxable brokerage account at all. They can put all of their retirement savings into 403Bs and Roth IRAs, et cetera. Yeah, we have a lot of buckets available to us. And, you know, I think for most teachers uh, and, and middle, I, I always say teachers, but really middle income earners in general, I mean, they're, they're probably not going to be able to invest much more than $6,000 of their income anyway, more than likely. And so, you know, in a married couple, that'd be 12000 So they could both open up a Roth IRA with Vanguard, invest their $12,000, you know, max them both out. And I mean, and that's they're it. Gonna be, yeah, they're going to be in great shape and they could have super, one. Super simple. Fund. Yeah. And it's so easy to manage your investment portfolio when that's the only account you're dealing with. This is another issue doctors have, right? They end up with a 457B and a 403B and a 401A and a couple of Roth IRAs and a taxable account. And maybe they got some 529s. They, they got a dozen investing accounts they got to keep track of. Whereas if you're saving and all your savings is in a Roth IRA and you can even make it simpler, you can put it all into a target retirement fund inside that Roth IRA and literally set it and forget it. And you don't have to do anything else. And you know, you have a very low cost, very sophisticated, actually investing solution that you never have to think about again. That's pretty powerful. And it's something that most uh, high income professionals do not uh, are not able to use because our you know, account situation is just not that straightforward. Yeah. We talk often about 25 by 25. If a teacher could have $25,000 invested into say a Roth IRA by the time they're 25 years old, even if they never invested another penny at 65, it's going to be worth somewhere around $750,000 based on historical returns. And if you've got a pension, like in some of these union States, uh, some of the pensions are 45, $50,000 a year, man, you know, mixing in potentially social security, you know, Roth IRA contributions, you might be looking at an income of, you know, seven, $8,000 a month, and you aren't even really having to touch those investments. Yeah. The third imperative for our, uh, where we've, we've actually got a book coming out pretty soon called the fit position. And the third imperative in it is be a lifelong learner. Um, and, 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 you know, you mentioned that you said, look, I, you know, I don't, I don't know enough about this. I better become financially literate. You know, I would love to hear a little bit about uh, the resources that you use, maybe favorite books, favorite podcasts, favorite whatever, the different uh, sources of information that you uh, educated yourself with. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of different resources and everybody's a little bit different in how they like to learn. 
Right. A lot of people listening to this, they prefer podcasts. I'm not a big podcast listener, even though I have a podcast, even though I go on lots of podcasts, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, you know, auditory is not how I learn. I learn visually for the, for, for the most part. And so my selected methods of learning are twofold. One is books. And the beautiful thing about a book is it's not current. So all you put in a book is evergreen principles, mm-hmm. you know? And so you learn the important stuff from a book and it's put in a nice framework. It's usually been edited well. Um, you know, it has those advantages over something like a blog or an online article. So I think books are a great way to learn. And the other way I like to learn is forums, interactions with other people online, bouncing ideas, uh, you know, tend to learn the new up-to-date stuff there. Um, people bat down your ideas and you learn from, you know, uh, from that. And so those are my two preferred methods of learning. So that's kind of how I became financially literate was getting books at a used bookstore, checking them out from the library and interacting on free internet forums, yeah. um, you know, and, uh, but if you like blogs, follow a good blog. If you like podcasts, listen to good podcasts. You know, if you, if you're into video, there's lots of good stuff on YouTube. So I wouldn't feel like you got to do it exactly the way I did it. As far as books go, you mentioned a good one earlier, J.L. Collins book, excellent book. I keep a list of recommended books at the White Coat Investor. If you go there under one of the headings at the top, there's a whole list of recommended books. Um, If you have never read an investing book, let me give you one that I know you can get through, that I know you can afford. And this is written by a physician turned financial guru by the name of William Bernstein. And it is titled, If You Can. And if you will Google... If you can PDF, it will pop right up. It is completely free. It can't be 20 pages long. And it will tell you 98% of what you need to know about investing. And it's a fantastic resource. If you can, it's a PDF written by William Bernstein. It is designed for millennials um, to, to get that, you know, investing education that they need. And it's pretty darn quick to read. Now, to be fair... The book does recommend five other books, but if you will just read that PDF, it's literally like a pamphlet. If you will read that, you will know more about investing than the vast majority of Americans and the vast majority of financial advisors out there or people calling themselves financial advisors. So highly recommended if you can. Dave, I would say that might be something to be used in a personal finance class. What do you think? That sounds really good. I, I know what you're going to be doing tonight. <laughs> do, yeah, I'll be reading that tonight. <laughs> I have no doubt. And that sounds really good. I love free PDFs. And oftentimes in class, we'll do a jigsaw book study. You know, let's say we've got 30 kids in a class. I might put them in, you know, there's uh, you know seven chapters in a book or something and divide them into groups of seven. They read the chapter. They do a one page or become an expert on their chapter. They come up and present the chapter to the rest of the group. And literally in a day and a half, the whole class could essentially have read that book without having to read a book, um, which is a lot of fun. I might have to add that to the list. So, Jim, this has all been awesome stuff. I know you're busy. You've got to drive two hours to another thing. And I know you've already done other podcasts today. If you could just in closing, you know, give any advice to the school teachers of America uh, when it comes to finance or when it comes to just anything with maybe some of the stuff that we're dealing with today, provide some hope and some advice for our American teachers. Let me take this. I think we've given lots of advice and touched on probably the most important things already. So I'm not going to repeat those. I'm going to go completely a different direction and throw something else out there. One of the beautiful things about being a teacher is you tend to work nine to 10 months a year, which leaves you this gap in the summer of two or three months 
when you can often do something else. Now, every teaching position isn't like this, but you can often do something else. And that something else may not be your passion like teaching is. It may be something you do primarily for the money. But you'd be surprised how easy it is to double your income. Uh, I think the vast majority of Americans overestimate the difficulty of doubling their income. And whether you start some sort of entrepreneurial pursuit in the summer, whether you do something that's also teaching related, whether you go sell pest control door to door. You know, I know all these kids in the neighborhood that do this in the summers between college and make forty to $60,000 in three months. Um, I would give serious consideration to that. Not only does extra income, yes, it helps you to build wealth faster, but it also allows you, if this is self-employment income, to open another 401k, an individual 401k, and put some additional retirement savings away there. So I would give some, that would be my tip, is give some thought to what you do in that two to three month period. And there's lots of competing priorities, I know. Uh, but give some thought there to maybe doing something that might boost your income and may uh, may solve some of the, the financial difficulties that, that you face. Um, yes, it's not all about income, but a little more income absolutely does help. Great, great advice. advice. We talk about side hustles uh, from time to time on the show, and we talk about ways that you can, you know, maximize the time because we also get off uh, fairly early in the afternoon. You know, I mean, at, at here I, at 3.15, my contract hours are done. And so I have from 3.15 until, I mean, I, I have three or four hours where I can go do something to make extra money. And, you know, and, and I think the time to do that is especially when you're younger. As you get older and you become more encumbered with responsibility, it becomes a little harder to do that. But when you're younger and you have energy, that's probably the number one thing. You have that energy and you have the time to, to give to it. You could really make a, lo a lot of money. Uh, using that. That is great advice. Great advice. And and thank you for everything uh, that you just brought to the show today. This is going to be an outstanding episode. A lot of people are going to get a lot of encouragement and they're going to learn a lot uh, from listening to all that. And hopefully you get turned on to your literature and the things that you're putting out. And and that's another avenue by which people can go and, and learn information, valuable information. So, yeah. And they're certainly welcome to come over to, you know, check out what's at the white coat investor. Yeah. Uh, you know, it may be aimed at high income professionals, but let's be honest, 95% of this stuff is the same for everybody. That's right. Awesome. Well, Jim, we greatly appreciate you and thank you listeners for joining us on this week's version of the fit educator podcast. We hope you join us for next week. And remember, someone is sitting in the shade today because they planted a tree a long time ago. Take care, everybody.